a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course, address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits, welcome. Welcome to today's episode. Gosh, this is going to be a special one. On the podcast, I'm speaking to the brilliant Toro. And oh my gosh, what a story she has to tell. Toro Shah is a nutritional scientist, an integrative medicine practitioner, a health writer and consultant, as well as the founder of The Urban Kitchen. After completing her Bachelor of Science in Cell Biology, where she specialized in cancer, she then worked in research and went on to do a Master's in Nutritional Science. But what really, really interested me about Toral and why I wanted to bring her onto the podcast today is she was diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer, not only once, but three times. And she was put into menopause at three separate occasions. So today's episode is not just going to be about solely learning from Toral about what she shares from her professional experience, but it is also really about resilience and how do we cope when life gets so tricky and you hear you've got cancer, not only once, but three times. At one point in the conversation, a bit more than halfway through, Toro mentioned something that no one's really ever said to me in that context. And it's really hit home. It brought me right back to when I was first diagnosed and I couldn't help, but I just was so emotionally involved at that moment. I couldn't help but shed a tear. I hope you Don't think that is mad, Um, but I thought the podcast episode was so valuable, I I wanted to share it with you anyway. In particular, I want to try and find out from Toro how she navigated tamoxifen at three separate occasions and what she can share with us, as I know this is something so many of you are struggling with. Let's welcome her in. Hi, Toro. Hi, Danny. (laughs) So nice to see you. Thank you for coming on. I've just introduced you before you came on, obviously, and I thought, gosh, where do we even start? And I thought, at the beginning, tell me what's happened. So, I mean, there's so there's even more and more beginnings, but I mean, I'll tell you about my kind of association with cancer, because I think that's a really good starting point. But when I was 11, I was quite a precocious child, and I had a really high reading age, and I read this book about a cancer surgeon, and, you know, some about oncology it was a, it was a novel and I thought to myself in that moment I am going to work in cancer I mean what does 11 year old know anyway so for me it was kind of obvious okay a levels go to medical school become an oncologist and then the reality here <laughs> uh, my mother had was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was at, at you know university and medical school and I realized that was not the job I wanted and also just really understanding that you know oncology and um 
it's a tough job, but also just seeing my mother go through breast cancer helped change my whole perception of what your cancer world was like. And seeing my mom suffer for three, you know, three chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, you know, hormone treatment, all of that. And it made me really think about kind of cancer, diet, lifestyle. Fast forward a few years, I, was, I changed from medicine, I ended up doing a master's in nutritional medicine, specializing in cancer. And we went away and I, when I was moisturized, I could just feel a lump. And I kept thinking, that's really strange. I left it for a few weeks, kept sort of thinking about it. And then I showed my mom. I said, mom, I've got this lump. She, even she was like, hmm, that's really strange. Let's keep an eye on it. Wait for one period cycle. Because, you know, younger women, you get cysts. About this point, I was 29. And um, I was feeling, and like, this, this thing wouldn't go away. So eventually went to our GP. GP um, said that a new female doctor was starting next week. Could he leave it till he checked my breast? And so we did that. And then when I did see her, she didn't take it very seriously. And it, nothing really happened for us. Luckily, my mum works in the field. And so I eventually did have a have kind of a mammogram and a, a scan, an ultrasound and a biopsy. And then I realised I was diagnosed with breast cancer but really it was more um early stage mostly ductal carcinoma in situ which means it's trapped in the milk ducts and then a tiny bit of kind of micro invasion of the breast cells of kind of out of the breast cells and so at the age of 29 I had a mastectomy it was all over my breast and my mother has had breast cancer my aunt has had breast cancer loads of my mom's cousins have had breast cancer all the same type on the same side so I had a mastectomy um and you know that that was done. There was no need for radiotherapy or chemotherapy because it was so kind of almost precancerous, but early stage. And but how to- how tough for your mum as well? Um, and I always say I've been on both sides. I've had the cancer diagnosis, but I've always also been very close to people who have had cancer and we lost them. And sometimes I don't know what's worse. Having cancer yourself is definitely not worse than supporting someone that you love who has cancer. And so you and your mum, you've been on both sides with each other. It must have been so tough. Mum said it was worse for her watching me through it than it was having it himself. I can totally relate. I'd seen your child go through that at so young. Yeah. It was so difficult. And just because I was in such a different stage of life to her, when she was diagnosed, she was 49, which is a, a slightly younger age. But, you know, we were in our 20s. We were already yeah. at university. It was different. Whereas for me, I, you know, my whole life was still ahead of me. Uh, and, like, you know, to lose a breast that young, it means hard at any age, but particularly when you're the, at the age where you're so body conscious, you're so into your figure, so into what you wear, I still was single. Uh, you know, it, 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 losing a breast is so emotionally scarring and mentally scarring. And it just shaped me being a woman, actually. Um, of course it did. Did you wake up with a reconstruction? Was that an option or...? So I had said very, very clearly to my surgeon and I ended up moving around hospitals and finding different surgeons until I found one that I liked. And I said to him, I cannot wake up with nothing. Please don't do that. And this is back in 2006, where immediate reconstruction wasn't necessarily a given option. But in this instance, they were going to do something. They were going to do something they call a lateral dorsi flat, where they take a bit of muscle from your back and bring it forward. And I was really anxious about that because I'm very active and I kind of, swim and climb and do all sorts of stuff uh well I played tennis at the time and I was climbing every week and you know I didn't want to do that and eventually when they went into the surgery obviously the the DCIS and the kind of cancer spread further than I thought and they're like no let's not do that just in case I needed radiotherapy so he said and then apparently they had a massive discussion within the surgery he's like if she wakes up with nothing she was just gonna be devastated so they put an implant in 
And so I lived with, I woke up with an implant. And I remember thinking, because I've been told the sur other surgery would be very painful. So I woke up and I said to the nurse, I said, oh, I don't know what you've done and what you're giving me is brilliant. It doesn't hurt that much. I mean, it hurt, but like, you know, not as much as they told me. Because they said, oh, you'll be passed out for two days or something like that. And I, and I said, they said, oh, have you spoken to the doctor? I was like, no. And I kept asking people and eventually doctor the surgeon he's like I didn't do what we decided I just put implant and I was like oh wow and I was so relieved actually because I didn't want the rest of my body to be kind of moved around um yeah and it meant that I recovered a lot more quickly and I was able to be active you know pretty quickly but, but that it's a weird time isn't it you know the first hour because I've woken up from quite a few surgeries myself but the first hour when you're sort of half asleep before the nurses come they tend to you and you're like how did it go and you're trying to touch your body and you're trying to think what's there what's changed has it gone to plan and it's awful isn't it and you're in a bit of a weird state until someone finally comes to talk to you and you just want to you just want them to say you're okay darling you're okay but until they can say that it's awful I hate that first hour <laughs> actually I, I quite like it because I just feel very peaceful but what's I think it's because I've had 30 plus surgeries in my life but this time oh. now, I'll come back to it I woke up and I felt like it'd been a really long time because it was supposed to be six to eight hours and it was I woke up I said what's the time like I kept asking <laughs> Surgery again, why didn't you say to us? And I want to know how long it took. <laughs> he said, yes. took nine and a half hours. I said, that's a lot longer. What happened? What went wrong? <laughs> he oh. said, why don't you just relax, calm down, and then maybe <sighs> we can. So <laughs> I think I've now become quite experienced. I also tell the anesthetists everything I need and what will happen to me, because I know myself better than they do <laughs> unless it's my normal anesthetist, which who isn't there anymore. So it it is quite a it is quite a funny process in that way. So without having to have initially radiotherapy or chemotherapy or further treatment, were you discharged as a 29-year-old? What help was available no, to you then? No, so obviously I was offered tamoxifen, estrogen blocker because it was a hormone-dependent cancer. Plus I was on a special program for 10 years of high family, high risk because of, due to my family history and having already had breast cancer. So I was having an MRI scan every single year for between 30 to 40, to just to make sure nothing came back. And if it was, we were able to treat it earlier. So, you know, 10 years, I tried, I mean, we can come back to the tamoxifen later, but I tried, you know, 10 years, absolutely fine. And actually completely fine until uh, 12 and a half years later when I found a tiny little, my well, not having a lump, they found a lump because I kept complaining that my scar felt weird. And I can't say anything more than that. It just felt different suddenly. And I showed my physiotherapist and she agreed. It felt weird. So I chased and chased and chased and eventually was seen and I had a tiny little tumor less than two centimeters in the skin because I had a skin sparing mastectomy, which means they kept the skin, but removed all the flesh behind it. So they, at the time, it was very, I just didn't realize it would come back after that length of time, like 12 and a half years. And at the time, it was quite shocking, scary, you know, all of those things. So I just opted, and I was with a really good surgeon friend of mine who, who works in another field, and we just opted to have that little lump removed rather than doing something else at that point. Because I just thought, I'd rather know what it is and what's going on. Again, like the conversation came up about chemotherapy and radiotherapy and the team decided themselves that it wasn't, it was too risky to give me, not risky to give me radiotherapy, but it could, the thing is when you have radiotherapy as a younger person, it can give you the risk of increasing your risk of other cancers like lymphoma and kind of, so they decided again not to. And I went, 
again, tamoxifen, and we'll talk about that. And then in the, after obviously the pandemic, which was very difficult, not after the first part, but in the summer of 2020, I went on a trip with my friend to Wales and I drove everywhere and my shoulder just kept hurting. I couldn't understand why. And it felt like referred pain. And I've had that before from you know all the mastectomy and stuff. So I called the hospital about 12 times because early in the year I'd had a PET scan, which wasn't quite clear. They weren't sure whether it was dermatitis or there was some new cancer. Cause I had this weird sort of, flaky skin on my breast and I, I, I just don't have flaky skin. I don't have skin like that. And then the ball got dropped because of the pandemic. And then I started to ring in August onwards saying something's not right. And it took about 12 phone calls. To, and then I eventually bypassed wow. the whole system and went straight to my surgeon and the secretary and said, listen, this is a problem. Wow. And so I was diagnosed and unfortunately it was um, through the length of my scar of my mastectomy, it was just a whole new tumor. It's long, thin and skinny, but trying to spread um definitely more aggressive than any cancer I've had before were these three separate cancers or is this the first cancer that has come back or first cancer that's come back okay. yeah and so this time around they obviously because they dropped the ball and it took them months actually to kind of really take me seriously and you know I understand it's been a difficult time with the pandemic and then they wanted to throw the whole kind of kitchen sink at it so surgery which meant reconstruction, but I don't have any spare skin left because I've had so much surgery already. So I had to go for a much deeper uh, type of surgery called deep flap, where they take skin and fat from your stomach and a blood vessel and make a new breast. And actually, you know, I've become a bit COVID fat, so that actually worked out quite well. And then, and I knew it was something I'd have to do at some point because I can't have an implant for the rest of my life. You know, I, I, I just can't do that. So it was something, and I kind of got my head around it because we had already discussed it in 2018 and I said I wasn't ready. And part of it, they don't really want to offer that to people necessarily if they're still planning to have children and things like that. So now I know I'm, I'm kind of done with that part of my life, which I can talk about more. But um, so then I yeah, and then the whole thing came about radiotherapy, chemotherapy, you know, the hormone treatment again. So I and had, you are waiting for your another sort of last bit of reconstruction on Monday now, aren't you? This is a long journey. This is, can I just ask you before we go back to all the treatment in your time from your twenties to now, I assume you're in your early forties now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm 45. Have you you continued to do your studies? I mean, your professional resume is amazing. So you've managed to sort of pull through, do all of that work and get on with your life, right? As well. Absolutely. As I all mean, of this. I think it's also almost made me much more determined to help people with cancer and to support people like me and people like my mum and people like you. And so I've continued, I finished my master's in nutritional medicine. I've done all my, fun- I've been doing my functional medicine training. I've been doing my genomics training. I've continued with doing vast amounts of CPD. If there's any kind of conference on breast cancer or kind of training, I'm there, um, especially with diet and lifestyle. So I, I'm just really interested. But I also think it's really important to keep on top of it. And that way I can help people in the best way. And the problem is we still have this whole thing where, doctors uh, and medical students aren't taught about nutrition and lifestyle so they don't know what to advise and everyone's asking about this now obviously when I was first talking about this from 99 to 2006 when I did my you know master's and I was diagnosed no one really understood it it was only really in 2012 13 14 that people started really get involved in nutrition in a mainstream but particularly with 
disease you know prevention and risk reduction and so I have spent I, I was probably about 10 years ahead of the game and I spent all my time kind of kind of learning ever since in fact I'm at a course this weekend and then I'm going to have surgery on Monday <laughs> like I'm going to roll straight into learning into like the theatre and that'll be it so and that's pretty much how I it roll. Didn't, three times cancer clearly didn't stop you in your tracks Toral did it no it spurred <laughs> you on. It spurred me on but it slowed me down and obviously my life's been very different to other people my age and I think you know when I turned 29 30 all my friends were really progressing their careers they were buying houses they're meeting people they're starting to settle down and I felt very left behind for a long time and you know every now and then I still do and then I'm like realize that my life is just on a very different path yeah thank you for sharing that from the first time you were diagnosed the second time the third time to now part of your treatment included tamoxifen how was that for you one, two, three. <laughs> tamoxifen, so for those of you who don't know, tamoxifen is an estrogen blocker. So it stop, you have estrogen receptors all over your body and it stops your body from kind of binding to that estrogen and for it to work on your body. There are other drugs that people, you know, older people use, but for premenopausal women, this is the one drug that is uh, recommended and licensed actually. So if you have a hormone dependent breast cancer, so estrogen and progesterone, estrogen, you will have often be diagnosed with, you know, being given tamoxifen. So the first time around, and the standard kind of dosage is 20 milligrams. It used to be for five years, but for younger people, it's 10 years. And obviously there's things that you can, other things that you can take, and we'll talk about that in a second or, or, or even do. And um, the first time, 20 milligrams, I was 30 literally the way I will describe it is that my vagina was on my vulva was on fire um mm. I didn't know what to do three weeks of just feeling like I can't wear underwear I can't walk I can't I just feel so swollen and sensitive and the doctors didn't really know I saw gynecologists and all sorts of people in oncology and no one really knew and now we know that's vaginal atrophy which is one of the side effects of a menopause generally and b you know from taking tamoxifen but in those days this is not this is 2008 no really and you were 30, thing. you were 30, right? And just like you say, there are your friends going out, meeting people, and you're faced with a body without a real breast, with scars, with more uncertainty, unable to sit down, and there was no help. It's crazy. And then I just stopped because I just thought, I'm not doing this, it's ridiculous. And then obviously I was very lucky, nothing happened you know, for, for many years. And so in 2012, I mean, 18, when I had this recurrence and I realized, hang on a second, you know, again, it's the same cancer. So it's very estrogen positive. We need to try it. So I talked about my kind of issues this time around. So can I stop you? Sorry. When you decided to stop tamoxifen because of your symptoms, what was the conversation there with your healthcare team? Talk me through that. So the conversation was, oh, you really need to take it, really need to take it. And then I just basically stopped telling them anything. I just stopped. That was end of that. Because it just, there wasn't the understanding in those days. So I just stopped and that was the end of that. And then I eventually told them I'd stop and that was the end of that. I just didn't just Well, what we know now is that you are one of so many who do exactly that, isn't it? Which is also why often statistics aren't that accurate because so many people say they take it, their oncologists think they take it, but they actually don't because the side effects are so bad. Every conference I go to with younger women and breast cancer, I'm always the one person putting my hand up saying, but what are you doing? You keep talking about us taking endocrine therapy, but what are you doing about the side effects? No one's doing anything about the side effects. 
2018, obviously I've had the same issues. This time round, they gave me, we, we said we'll try with us to half a dose. So I had the tablets, which are tiny in the first place, and I was cutting them with a pill cutter. Um, I lasted, I think, seven weeks this time. Vaginal symptoms were the worst. Obviously the hot flushes stuff, but I can deal with that kind of thing. Um, more help? More help, tiny bit of help because I was given some, um, some vaginal moisturizer. Uh, but I wasn't given estrogen pessaries in the same way, like Medifem. This time around, obviously things have changed a lot because the menopause conversation started in 2019 properly. We started yeah. five milligram dosage because I was having a liquid one just and to try and titrate upwards. And we started with like literally taking it every third day, then taking it every second day and then taking it every day and you know, blah, blah, blah. And the vaginal symptoms were actually managed really well because I had such a small dose, but I was having estrogen, you know, pessaries, which local estrogen, which is very helpful for vaginal entry. And I just wasn't getting the same side effect. My main problem was this time were absolutely splitting headaches and brain fog. And the headaches were so debilitating. I couldn't really work. I, I don't have a family. I don't have a husband, partner. And for me, my work is everything. I really love my work. Yeah. And so... I lasted eight months and we're having a treatment break, which has become a slightly extended treatment break. But the other thing I've done in the meantime is I have done been doing my own genomic testing, you know, to understand my own body and why it works. I, and learning from that, that my estrogen negative feedback loop is not working very well. So if you remove estrogen from my system or stop it working, my body just wants to make more estrogen. So tamoxifen, I mean, the small number of people where taking tamoxifen actually makes my body make more estrogen. So that's not wow. useful. And like, this is the is, kind of thing. Is this something that, is this knowledge that is available to most cancer patients or is this something because, no, no, this no, is something because not, you've I mean, done your research. Well, I've, I've also trained in this, but also yeah. you know, definitely conversations about single nucleotide polymorphism testing, SNP testing. And I know Julia Badbury talked about it, um, but in a very different way with polygenic risk scoring. But, but you know, in America, where they've just had the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the things that came up were people taking endocrine therapy, side effects, looking at you know personalizing treatment with this SNP testing. And so the science is out there. It's just that you know, we have the NHS, which just doesn't have as much money and it's not funded and and so and you know people aren't trained in this so did you at, at the times when you stopped the tamoxifen because the side effects were so bad did you I mean I think that is an incredibly empowering step to take control of your health and I can't help but think that you must have also felt terrified at points whether you're doing the right thing yes yeah, I am terrified. And I, until maybe last month, I was really terrified because I was just worried that the cancer, you know, I've got two sets of nodes which are still, you know, be taking up radioactive isotope when I do a PET scan. And we couldn't figure out just because they were irritated because they were near the silicon implant or whether it was something growing. And, you know, luckily the first, last year scans is decreased in both. So we've finally gone from three monthly scans to six monthly scans. And for me, that's, just such a relief because you know I don't want to not take tamoxifen and then for it to all come back but at the same time I couldn't live with the debilitating side effects so for me hot flushes I can manage because they seem to be worse at night time the vaginal stuff I managed to figure out but those headaches were just 
and I just felt awful. I guess that's the problem when people are on hormone blockers or whether we're thrown into menopause naturally, right? You don't know how it's going to affect you. I've got a whole podcast episode here with Sam Evans from Joe Divine and also Dr. Charlotte Gooding just about our vulvas and vaginas because <laughs> it is such a big topic. It really needs a whole hour just in its own, doesn't it? But then and there's, there's our quality of life, isn't there? I mean, the, the headache's one thing, but as a, as a younger person, you do want to be able to have a sex life too. Like, especially if you're single. I'm not saying, obviously, just as important in a relationship, but it, in a relationship, hopefully you have that relationship. You can talk to that person about it. And you can work it together. When you're single, you sort of have to manage it yourself. Plus, you have to think about whether you want to get out there and meet people. So it's a lot to deal with. Um, yeah, and you can't quite go on dates with a whole bag full of moisturizers, loops, <laughs> vaginal pessaries. Well, I guess you can because you have I mean, to. <laughs> Sam suggests that you take all this stuff with you. So, you know, and I love Sam to bits. So, um, yeah, but yeah, let's <laughs> make it a bit harder. You know, just there's no casual, you know, dating in that instance. So it, it just well, needs to pull out. With all the people you've spoken to, and clearly tamoxifen is such a big part of your treatment, your life, but also your research. What have you heard from other people? What did I do? I know from a lot of people that go on treatment breaks, but also know from younger people like you who maybe stop tamoxifen and do something else like an aromatose inhibitor because it works similarly. Was that ever an option for you? So one of the conversations we did have was taking as um, this kind of exomestane, which obviously uh, blocks your your ovaries from making estrogen and then Zolodex, which stops it from moving around the body. So there's a combination of those. The only problem is that the medical oncologists were thinking if you've got such side effects on tamoxifen, you're probably going to have worse side effects if we completely right. remove it from the system. So it didn't make sense. There were two schools of thought and there were two different groups of oncologists at the hospital who had two different discussions. It was interesting. So there was always an option. That's always an option I can try. I just don't think that's necessarily the right one for me because if we remove estrogen, we have estrogen receptors all of our body. Given that the headaches I was getting, we have a lot of estrogen receptors in our brain, which is why people with menopause have this brain fog and headaches. Yeah. And so if I'm removing all the estrogen from my system, that's still going to happen. And then the other thing is our body, if you are on estrogen blockers or you know things like that, your body, that's why people often in midlife put on, women put on body fat because the fat releases a very weak form of estrogen, a slightly different type, but a weak form. So the more body fat you have, the more estrogen. So it's just becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. So mm -hmm. for me, I put on some weight through COVID, through obviously being sitting after surgery and, you know, all the rest of it. And the gym's being shut in the lockdown, things like that. So for me, when I stopped taking tamoxifen, it's been much easier to lose some of that extra body weight too, which is also yeah. going to help reduce my risk of breast cancer recurrence in the first place. So so many yeah. linkage to all of these things. It's very difficult. And I've just recently spoke to a lady who really, really, really persisted with her oncologist to go on a treatment holiday. I think she was on Zodalex or something like that, because the weight gain was becoming so unbearable. And she's put on two stones in, in nine months. And she kept saying, I'm more unhealthy having all this extra weight and I can't get rid of it than perhaps the few percent that my treatment would reduce my risks of recurrence. And it was a really hard decision for her, but for her, it was the right decision. And I feel so empowered for people when they can take those steps because they're so hard to make, aren't they, those decisions? Yeah, and I won't say that you give up without having the conversation. I think the first thing I would say is 
talk to your oncologist, explain. And so this time around, I've actually asked for a change of oncologist because I just felt like I needed a new relation with a new person so we could start fresh from the beginning. Wow. And good idea. Mm. Really important to me. So that was. Can you first. do that? Can you do yeah. it on the NHS? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, all my treatments being on the NHS. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because you know personality fit and and I really did feel heard but the other one and I basically made complaints and I said I need to have someone who actually listens to me and this one you know the one new one's excellent and listens to me we won't necessarily agree on things but she does listen and and that's fine and then the second thing is you know I've obviously had experience before as explained okay what can we do from the beginning so her thing about starting with five milligrams was great it was a really good idea the starting with once every three days, once every two days, once every day, working out what time of day was better. Like for me, taking the evening was a lot better. So the worst, the side effects at nighttime rather than the daytime. Then slowly trying to increase the dosage. You know, we did, and I think all of those things helped. I've had another treatment break and then we started again because I, so when I started to get really bad headaches, when I increased the dose to, I can't remember what it was, but it was above five milligrams. Then we had a treatment break for I think six to eight weeks and then we started again and that was sort of what stabilized and you know, same thing. So I think being having those honest open conversations and having a treatment diary like a diary where you're writing stuff down. For me, I wear something like an aura ring, which helps to monitor my sleep. Because one of the worst issues and side effects for me was lack of deep sleep. I was yeah. not getting any deep sleep. So in a normal person needs at least an hour of deep sleep a night. I was getting 20 to 30 minutes max. And that went on for a year. It was unbearable. It's changed my thyroid hormones. It's increased my cholesterol levels, all of those things. People don't wow. necessarily think about those things. So for me, that lack of deep sleep just meant I was exhausted. And my body wasn't having time to kind of do the deep healing and my brain to, you know, clear itself out. So yeah. In, so I did end up having a break. And we said it was going to be a three-month break. And then I've just basically said, I don't want to do this right now. So with a, You're with still a, on your break. Yeah, so I'm still on yeah. my break, which is you now gone on to, I'm on month seven. But on the top of that, I had some blood tests just after just after I stopped uh, the tamoxifen. And I've had the blood tests again, and there's a real difference by I me mean, coming off, which is, impacts my risk of cardiovascular disease, is improved, my blood pressure, all of those things. And my liver... And all very- of those, right? All yeah. of those are overall health risks and... They're important because we're one whole person and not just this cancer risk person, right? It's all of it. Not at all. And also my liver was really unhappy. My liver was enlarged. The, the, the function was fine, but it was enlarged and it was I could to the point where I could actually feel it. And if I ate certain things or drank certain, like any alcohol, it just, my body revolted. So I just thought this is just not working for Poison. me. But also, you've been really busy, haven't you? Because you're putting together a PhD proposal, looking at the impact of stress, diet, lifestyle, especially on estrogen dependent cancer. And the reason why I want to bring it up is because when I see all those things on social media, I'm feeling quite torn about it. Because on the one hand side, having been diagnosed myself, I think, wow, stress, diet, lifestyle, if that has an impact on my cancer, then does it make it my fault? And on the other hand, it's so empowering because I think, well, if it has an impact, there's something I can do about reducing my risks. Where do you sit within that? So I'm exactly the same as you. And I think some people have recently you know, recorded some videos about that. But for me, I, I can't. Some, 
I went from an Indian background, and in Indian background, they look talk about karma quite a lot. Oh, it's your karma that you've had this, which kind of made it feel like it was my fault. So I was very against that from the very beginning. So I don't feel like any, and I've had to, a lot of time to think about this. Oh, is it my fault? Is this what happened? But I've now got to a point where it's not my fault. I'm genetically predisposed. Some people aren't, obviously. Like 80% of breast cancer is not genetically. I'm definitely in that familial group. So I can either empower myself by taking control of all of these things and managing them because our body and our immune systems work really well normally they find any cells which are growing out of control which can cause cancer and actually kind of eat them gobble them up and that's it end of that so obviously when you have cancer something's not quite right for whatever reason and maybe you've been exposed to some sort of carcinogen or maybe i don't know who knows what so knowing when i've spoken to younger women and i really talk about younger women because that's where it's been more obvious. Every younger woman that I know that's had breast cancer, and I'm talking about people under 40, so that includes you and I, they've had some sort of trauma in the 18 months or two years before being diagnosed with breast cancer. So it, it started, yeah. So it started me thinking, what is this? And then when we did our sort of training with integrative oncology, I started to understand that there's definitely overlap with some of the enzymes that break down cortisol and that break that also break down estrogen and so our estrogen cycle there's overlap so the more stress there is the less your body is able to break down estrogen so it builds up in your body and it's particularly bad if you're making the bad form the 4-OH version which I definitely make more of other people don't and stress actually pushes it that way and alcohol does too and towards that but not everyone does that but for me personally when I talk to these younger women ask younger women rather there is something and like personally I know I had a horrible breakup about 18 months before I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was slim, lean, eating all the right things. I'd already done my master's in nutritional medicine. I knew what I need to eat. I was doing half, you know, starting to do triathlons. So I was doing all the right things from those kind of physical perspectives, but I still had breast cancer. Okay, my mom and my aunt, you know, people, we have it in our family, but there was, there was obviously something else. So that's where I'm starting to try and understand what can we do? I think not that in a is- false perspective, but in a more like, okay what's happened yeah yeah what's happened how can we help and support ourselves how can we take control and that doesn't mean never eating cake again and not having a glass of champagne it's like okay well most of the time I need to do this and let's support our bodies and so when it comes to like nice occasions we can actually enjoy it without feeling stressed that during the rest of the week we ate rubbish too I've got a heart rate that is through the roof right now and I can't believe what you've said because I think I've addressed it I'm sure I've spoken about it but I haven't I've probably pushed it away for a long time now two years two and a bit years before I was diagnosed with breast cancer and bearing in mind I've had a I'm a BRCA1 carrier so um, I didn't know then but it is in my family and we lost family members of my dad's side all of them really to ovarian cancer so but I more of that made sense after my diagnosis but Two and a half years before I was diagnosed, my twin babies were born early and they were born at Chelsea Westminster Hospital. There were 30 weeks. I went in for an ultrasound, just a routine scan. My other two-year-old daughter was at home and the sonographer looked and looked me in the eye and said, Mrs. Pennington, um, we're going to deliver your babies tomorrow. They've transfused. Uh, they've, there's, it's a twin to twin transfusion syndrome. They'll have to be born. And up until that day, Toro, 
I never thought anything was going to go wrong with my life. I was kind of thinking I'm winning at life and life is going to be good to me. <laughs> and that was, I guess, the day when I was so shocked and traumatized. You hear it in my words now. It sort of rocked my world. Um, the babies are fine now, they're nearly 12. <laughs> they're really strong-willed, amazing girls. They've pulled through, they've, you know, they've been healthy. We've been in hospital, they were there for a good eight to 10 weeks when they were babies on the intensive ward. And, you know, it's been a tough time. But by the time I was diagnosed, I was so exhausted. I hardly ever slept. The trauma of them being born immediately was still in my bones and I was exhausted I was a young mom to three babies and I had so much help my family was amazing but it was just so exhausting so what you say resonates because I kind of think my body was running not low it was running on empty and it's the first time I guess someone else validated maybe what I was feeling no I get it and I just really feel for you and I will also say that Science doesn't have all the answers. And I've been a scientist my whole life. And I love answers and I love the logic of science. But there's so much we don't know. And we don't know so much about the human body and the human spirit and the impact of stress. And we've never had stress in the way we do now in this mm. really chronic way. And, and I'm not talking about acute stress where you have to like, let's say in the old days, we had to like a saber-toothed tiger was chasing us. It's not like that kind of stress. You know, we run and it goes away. This is chronic stress, which is taking over our bodies over a period of time plus the, the impact of the environment and what's been going on and and I, I really feel for you and I I will honestly say that for me I think the pandemic obviously the cancer may still have been there because we didn't have to do the radiotherapy in the skin you know there may be one cell left I'm not yeah. going to discount that but I do think the pandemic and being alone like I live alone by myself and not touching anyone for 11 or I think it was 11 or 12 weeks mm. I didn't really touch anybody it, it really like hurt me inside and, yeah. and, that, and I feel like that's part of the equation I'm not saying that there are things left I know that I ate differently I, I did you know, stress and there was a lot of emotional eating from stress and like not the healthy food which I normally eat but like the stuff that you know that's not so nutritious but like still we enjoy you know and so all of these things have impact and we and I and I only say it's more obvious in younger women because they may we may not have had this giant like these big giant traumas that maybe not everyone goes through and I think yeah. postmenopausal breast cancer it's a very different kind of your body is just different for a variety of reasons mm. um, and I think with you on top you already had this BRCA1 risk right your BRCA1 yeah. area. so you already were pushed like me you're pushed already to okay we're more likely to go through Next this stage yeah yeah, yeah. So then obviously when they get something else and i obviously i don't know the answer which is why i want to research this knowing um, <laughs> how the cortisols break down and how estrogen and, and other things are broken down this for me feels like okay and i'll say i might be wrong but you have to test the hypothesis unless you test Dude. it i don't know like I just need to find a supervisor, yeah. has a lot of fun me, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. It's important work. So this is the stress aspect, but I know as a as in your work, you help people with their lifestyle and diet. So if I'm a menopausal woman like you and I, in for various reasons after a cancer treatment, how can we support ourselves to have better overall health, long-term health, but also disease prevention? Because most of us are worried about our cancers returning. 
And I think what's really interesting is some of the foods and how you eat is equally relevant for if you're a breast cancer survivor, thriver, you know, patient, as it is for menopause. So back in 2018, there was some really interesting research. We looked at the Mediterranean diet pattern, which is basically a diet that's full of fruits, vegetables, legumes, beans, nuts, seeds, fish, olive oil, yes, unsaturated fat. And that showed that by eating a diet like that, which we know is a healthy diet pattern for cardiovascular disease, all sorts of different things, that diet pattern actually helped to delay menopause, which helped to kind of, doesn't help to reduce the symptoms, but it's one of those things that are delaying menopause as naturally is, is not a bad thing because then you have estrogen in your body for longer. But we also know that having a lower GI diet, so having a lower glycemic index where your body releases glucose more slowly, so that means eating more fiber foods and more protein and more like good fats, it's better for you than having lots of carbohydrates where blood sugar is released uh, fast. And that's because of there is a little bit of a link between insulin resistance and breast cancer. So if you're a type two diabetes patient, you're 20% more likely to have breast cancer. And so we're starting to understand all of this. So this lower GI diet seems to be supporting both breast cancer patients um, to help reduce reoccurrence and people with menopause because obviously it helps you to control your body weight and things like that. So there's that. Eating loads of fruit and vegetables um, is always really important with all the antioxidant polyphenols. I think lifestyle-wise, exercise, and I know you and I are both really into exercise, but there's so much good research. And this week um, at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, they had a really good study called LENA. And that study showed that patients who are going through breast cancer chemotherapy, if they actually exercise during the chemotherapy, which was doing at least 150 minutes a week of moderate or at least 75 minutes of vigorous exercise plus two strength training exercises like resistance training that helped to reduce their side effects and the toxicity of chemotherapy so there's so um, many different aspects to this whole diet and exercise we also know that that same amount of exercise for postmenopausal women can help reduce your risk for premenopausal women like us you need to be doing a lot of vigorous exercise so you need to be out of breath kind of so they measure this in METs and so you need to be having like XR which is like quite vigorous so six to eight so you could be doing like hardcore gardening you could be running you could be dancing hard you could be lifting weights whatever it might be it may not be as it's probably you need to do a little bit more vigorous exercise but that helps to reduce our risk and we don't really understand fully the mechanisms there could be so many ways of that so for me everyone's gonna have different things they can focus on for me I like exercising I so I do more of it because I know that it's really going to support reducing my risk for some people they might not love it but they need to find a type of exercise or let's call it physical activity which is actually better that help that they can do regularly it may be brisk walking it may be putting your favorite song in the morning and dancing 50 minutes I don't know but you've got to find something or doing something with your family you know playing tennis I don't know what it is but I think we've got to get away from this slightly more sedentary lifestyle and actually in the past, they always used to tell you to rest when you had chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And all the latest research shows that if you exercise throughout, it's going to reduce your toxicity and your side effects. Every day when I went for radiotherapy, I because it was a pandemic, I had to be very careful. There was no the gym wasn't even open. I hired a spin bike, which I kept in my house. <laughs> and I just did that before I went to the radiotherapy. And I was definitely felt like, you know, it made a difference to, you know, I definitely felt less tired. I did hit a wall with fatigue, but not till about six o'clock in the evening. So that meant I could get on with my day. And then, I, you know, from six till 
10 I just watched I felt like all I did was Bridgerton but you know that's that's fine you know that's great <laughs> so what's your take on soy I know we need to go we've chatted for a long time but soy is something so controversial isn't it and I you know you know I've been really obsessed with food and from one day to the next after I was diagnosed I cut out all major food groups because I thought it was healthy probably I added more stress to my poor body than necessary but soy I could never sort of see through is it good for us or is it bad for us or what okay so what the research shows because I think we always have to start with what the research shows the research shows that if you're having unprocessed soy foods particularly early in your life particularly adolescent stuff that can help reduce your risk of breast cancer and help to support what is unprocessed soy? Oh, I was just about to say what's unprocessed. So we're thinking about things like edamame beans, which are actual soya beans, like, you know, things like miso, tofu, tempeh, all of that kind of food. So now soya milk is considered processed. So it's really interesting that we've all suddenly moved to soya milk and then actually we're not sure if that works. And the reason being that in our gut microbiome which is our beneficial bacteria that live in our gut we have a special subsection of bacteria called the estrobolum those are uh, gut bacteria which actually metabolize estrogen and estrogen metabolites now these soya products are full of phytoestrogens they're similar to estrogen but they're not estrogens if you think about it as a lock in a key or a, P, a, a pen that is the estrogen receptor. Now, what we would do with, if it was a phytoestrogen is what it would do is it just block it so the estrogen can't get in, but that doesn't mean it's gonna make it work in the same way. So these phytoestrogens are actually very positive. They're, you know, antioxidant they can be as well. And they're, you know, they're in fine foods which are good for us, like flaxseed and, you know, all of those other seeds and things. So the min the common misconception is obviously some sort of study that was done is, you know, in vitro uh, or in animals and but actually soy is supposed to be good for us and i think for a long time even i was very conscious and i wasn't sure so so what you've just mentioned is kind of like your disease prevention but what if you've already had breast cancer yeah, Do you it's, the same, it's the same sort of oh, exactly the wow. same even if you've got estrogen positive breast cancer the reason being that the phytoestrogens actually can be mildly protective they're not going to cause cancer because they work in the way that I was just showing them. Why don't oncologists know that? I've just had a lady, I spoke to her a few weeks back and she was really upset because her oncologist, no, she went to a menopause specialist because I've sort of said, look, have it addressed, have it looked at. And her menopause specialist told her to not, not touch any soy. You're like, what? So I, again, it upsetting. Comes to people not learning about nutrition and lifestyle at medical yeah. school. And yeah. you know, I love, I work with NutriTank, which is this amazing organization of medical students, Ali, and she's just messaged me, I can see, um, really trying to encourage medical schools to take on some nutrition yeah. and lifestyle training. And of course, this is postgraduate training, some of it, you know, because they can't delve into every disease and everything, but there are some really good modules on the World Cancer Research Fund, which aren't just menopause-based, they're more breast cancer-based or cancer-based, which doctors can do for free, which teach them about all of these things and where yeah. the research comes from. So we really need people looking into it. And I'm lucky, my team, my actual surgical team, they've known me for 16 years now. So they know that I know. <laughs> if they have questions, they're like, Toral will know the answers. Whereas <laughs> you know, my oncology team don't know me as well. And so I've had to explain, listen, I know a lot more about this. You know about oncology, great. I know about my body better and I know about nutrition and lifestyle more than you. So we've had to, 
and I've had to explain things. Sometimes I just feel like she's just thinking, looking at me, thinking, "What are you talking about?" And then I, just, I think that is so empowering. If everyone listening to us today would just walk away with that message that you, as a patient, know your body best, better than your oncologist, better than anyone else. I think that is our key message. That's all we need to remember and hold on to. I also think people need to really connect with their bodies. A lot of people are disconnected from their bodies, you know, whether it's alcohol, drugs, you know, all of that stuff. And there's nothing, you know, wrong. Everyone needs to do certain things. But I also think it's to do with modern lifestyle, us dissociating from our bodies. So we need to be deeply, deeply involved with our bodies, as a, particularly as women. And we need to really get them. So that's my kind of parting point is get to know your bodies. I mean, how many people have never looked at their vulvas? Get a mirror, have a little look. Yeah, find out about your body, look at your body, look at it and really thank it for everything it's done rather than criticizing it. You're amazing. Gratitude for it. Because for me, I've had to transform my relationship, my body in that way. It's totally different right now. And it, it freaks me out. So I have to work every day on reaffirming <laughs> my love for it. And that's got me through. You're amazing. Thank you so, so much. I apologize for my tears, but I wasn't expecting you to say that. I had the script for the podcast written down. I knew what I was going to ask you. <laughs> I didn't have an, any idea you'd bring this up and it sort of hit, hit a spot. But thank you for talking to us today. You're so welcome. Um, we're humans. We're humans first and foremost. And, you know, when you were about to cry, I was about to cry. So just know that, you know, <laughs> we're worrying each other and it's been a difficult journey. It really has. And thank you for doing this. And always been, you know, the whole time I've known you, you've just been there championing women and menopause. And I know, you know, I know your own story with having ovaries removed and all those other things. It's really hard. And I acknowledge it's you. It's hard for all of us. Thank you for chatting. You're so welcome. Good luck for Monday. And thank I hope you. we can have you back on the podcast and to learn more about you, Toro. Thank Absolutely. you. You're very welcome. Gosh, I hope you found this episode with Toro as inspiring and uplifting and also as raw as I did. I couldn't quite believe it that Toro mentioned trauma and stress and the impact it has on our physical health. And I'd love to hear from you if you have stories, if you have anything to say, do email me. If you want to come on the podcast and be a guest and share your story, I'd love to hear from you. I want to spread as much awareness about people in menopause after cancer as possible. If you're a healthcare professional listening to this, not all of it might make sense because like Toro says, there are so many things we don't have answers for. I just want to show up and I want for my podcast guests to show up exactly how it is for us. And I guess there's never a right or a wrong. Menopause is never a this or that approach. And as long as we support each other and we're there for one another, I guess that's the best we can do.